Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Developmentor Podcast, your source for interviews and content on careers in tech. I'm your host, Grant Ingersoll. We're 30-some episodes in, and my excitement is building each and every episode as we continue to meet people working across so many different and cool aspects of technology. Every day we record, I can't help but pinch myself as I get to talk to some truly awesome people who have done the work to figure out their career path. If you are just joining us, we have a couple of simple goals for the show. We want to showcase interesting people in tech across a variety of roles and really highlight the different paths they took to get to that point, whether it's the traditional four-year degree route straight out of college or they took a meandering path through a variety of jobs. Today's guest is someone I've met a number of times over the years at various open source conferences, most recently All Things Open in Raleigh back in October of 2019. He has built quite an impressive career around the notion of helping people in tech come together to build community. He's an accomplished author, having just launched another book, this one called People Powered, which we'll link in the show notes. He's a regular public speaker a fellow podcaster, and last but not least, a collaboration strategy consultant. Along the way, he's helped companies like GitHub, Canonical, and XPRIZE build community in meaningful ways that go beyond the simplistic vendor-consumer transaction-based model. Please welcome to the show, John O'Bacon. John, great to have you here. Hey, Grant. It's great to be here. Yeah, and thanks so much for joining me. I mean, I, I gave you a little bit of a run in there. And, and yeah. you know, this, this show is really about finding your part in the modern landscape of tech. And you've done that in a pretty impressive way. And I think a pretty unique way. Maybe fill in all the, some of the details there that I, that I skipped over in that intro. Yeah, I mean, my career has been um, a bit rambling uh, <laughs> and uh, not where I expected it to go. Um, you know, I mean, I essentially started out when I, um, I, was, I was 18, living at home, and my brother introduced me to open source, uh, specifically Linux, uh, which was in its very early stages back then. And, and I discovered this notion of people coming together around the world to build a platform. And I it was just captivated by that, yeah, very interested in that. Because at that time, I was at school. I, I wasn't a very academic student. I got mainly C's when I did my core education. I got two D's and E and an N when I did my mm. uh, slightly higher education. Uh, so I was going to university and I wasn't really entirely sure what I was going to do. And a lot of the roles that I saw in tech, which I was interested in tech, didn't really appeal to me. I didn't particularly want to be a developer, um, but I knew I wanted to be involved in tech in, in some way. So I just started building communities and started doing it in the UK. And then, you know, as is the case in life, went on, uh, you know, I got drunk in a bar with a couple of guys who were launching a magazine called uh, Linux, Linux Format Magazine. So I asked if I could write for them. And they said, yes, but if the article's terrible, we won't publish it, which seemed reasonable terms. And then um, like, essentially became a journalist for the first couple of years. I wrote an article about an organization called Open Advantage, which was a government-funded initiative to basically train people in the West Midlands in the UK, where a lot of manual labor was going over to China, to train people in technology who were losing their jobs. And that was kind of a deep dive into a swimming pool filled with ice uh, (laughs) for how to kind of learn technology and consult with people. And then went on to Canonical and the next prize and then GitHub from there. So it was just as life is, it was just, you know, you start doing something and then some kind of opportunity opens up and you, you go after it. And sometimes you make the mark and sometimes you don't, but you keep on going. 
That's really great, John. I mean, and one of the themes of this show, it's even built in the name is this notion of mentorship. And it sounds like your brother actually played a, a mentoring role, which, you know, sometimes yeah. you know, when, it, when it comes to brothers, there's there's a bit of both <laughs> <laughs> you know, that could go a number of different ways. But perhaps right. drill, drill in a little bit more on on the some of the, the roles you mentors you've had. Yeah, it's kind of funny because I've had a bit of a weird relationship with mentoring because when I look at, for example, you know, I have a son and the way kids are raised around here where I live in California and the way I was raised in the UK is so different. You know, like kids are very aware of entrepreneurialism um, in the US, uh, not everywhere in the US, but certainly in in, in the Bay Area. Yeah. Um, and there's all of these opportunities that are afforded. And I didn't really have a lot of that. So I didn't really have the concept of mentorship when I was growing up. Like you had your teachers and then you were basically expected to figure it out yourself. So I've never really sought out mentors, particularly in the early stages of my career. But I ended up, for example, you know, when I got interested in open source and then I started going to Linux user groups and then I started meeting people online and I started meeting peers who were interested in the same things that I, I was interested in. So I started being exposed to mentors without realizing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I saw these folks as mentors and I, I admired them and I modeled some of my behavior on them as we, as we so often do. And it was really only since I left Canonical back in 2014, I think it was, when I realized the importance of having mentors because at that point, somewhat arrogantly, I felt like I'd basically figured out how communities work. You know, I'd written the Art of Community, I'd started the Community Leadership Summit, we'd had a pretty decent amount of success with Ubuntu. And I felt like I had most of the answers. And one of the things I've always admired about my wife, Erica, who now is on the executive team at GitHub, is that she's always reached out to people and said, you know, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm learning this. I'd like to get your input. Like when she was running a company, Bitnami, they'd always just get on meetings and, and get, you know, feedback and advice and guidance. And I never really did that. And it mm -hmm. wasn't that I felt like I was the best. It just didn't really strike me as something that you do. But now I, I look for it at every step of the way. For example, a, a friend of mine, Liz, she's an executive coach and she runs her own business. And as a consultant, you don't really have any peers. So it's nice to go out to dinner with her and just talk through how does she run her business? How does she approach her clients and things like that? So mentoring has definitely evolved. But my brother, Simon, he he's the one who's responsible for the fact that you people have to put up with me because, <laughs> you know, he really, he really jump-started the whole machine so yeah that's interesting i mean i think i kind of had that same sense for a long time and then it dawned on me that you know hey there's other people who have been through this maybe you should just ask <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well yeah and i think along those lines and i think for me it was just an element of of just getting older um if i'm being honest when i was at places like canonical when i was at at XPRIZE especially as well, I think I was probably a little bit insecure about, I think I felt like I was vulnerable to feedback. And, and I've always been very open to criticism. Like my biggest fear in the world is that I'm doing something wrong and no one will tell me. So I keep making the same mistakes. So I often invite feedback. But being able to say, for example, to present a set of statistics to a mentor and say, like, this isn't good. How do I improve this? I think I had a certain amount of self-consciousness about that. Um, and really in the last, I'd say the last five or six years, I've completely flipped on that. And now I see very much um, the areas where I'm not very good 
And I see that as a great opportunity to get better and the thrill of actually reaching out to people and then guiding you and really being able to zone in on, okay, well, these are my flaws. These are the these are the things that I can improve on and then seeing the results in when you improve on those. And I don't know whether that's something you can teach in people when you're younger. I think there's an element of just, you figure that stuff out as you get older is my theory. I mean, I wish I'd been able to do that when I was 20, but <laughs> yeah, for I don't sure. think I probably, I think I was too headstrong and, and whatever else. And frankly, a bit of an idiot when I was 20 to, to do that. So yeah. I and mean, you know, maybe it's some reaction to, you know, you've been in school for so long that you're tired of somebody else telling you. So it's just time to like, yeah, make I think you're probably right. <laughs> I, yeah. I will say the, the dirty little secret of this whole podcast is simply me getting mentoring one hour at a time from a bunch of people I admire. So. <laughs> I'll come back to the consulting question because I think you hit on some really interesting things there, but I, I first want to sure drill in on this notion of director of community because there's two there's two parts to that right you know at first I would love to hear the elevator pitch on how you view community and and how you think about it and then second overlay what does a director of community do what's right. the day look like so how do you piece that together into a career yeah so to me there has never been a more exciting time to talk about communities than today uh, for a few different reasons. One is that we've seen over the last 20 odd years um, enormous success stories with companies building communities. Um, you know, we've seen the enormous impact of open source around the world. It's running our devices, our data centers, you know, um, our IoT devices and beyond. And many companies have invested in that and they've been very successful from that. But we've also seen companies like Salesforce, Oracle, SAP, Harley-Davidson, Procter & Gamble, they've all developed very successful communities around, around their area of focus that provide support, software development, you know, event organization, advocacy, mentoring, all kinds of different pieces. So community itself is something that is demonstrating value. But what to me is particularly interesting is that the commoditization of technology um, and the rapid availability of internet access around the world means that more and more people today are digitally connected than ever before. 85% of millennials carry a smartphone. The cost of a gigabyte of data in India is far cheaper than it is in the US and the UK, for example. Hmm. So it means that more and more people have got an opportunity to connect. And I think younger generations are growing up. So people who are listening to this who are maybe starting to think about what they want to do for a career are growing up in a world with social media, with the internet. And we're an inherently social species. And what's happening is that it's changing the relationship that we have with the software that we use, with the brands that we engage with, with our institutions like universities and elsewhere, where people want to have a community relationship. If you look at the way we've engaged with brands in the past, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you buy a product and you only engage with the company via their, you know, customer service number or their email, you know, customer yeah. service email address. Um, then companies, as the internet started growing, people started getting email addresses, companies started sending out newsletters and broadcasting information to their customers. Then the next phase was more recently is, is building digital experiences attached to products such as building websites or downloadable apps. Anyone who's got a kid knows if you buy any toy now, it always comes with an app that your kid is <laughs> pestering to install on your phone. But still, that's very much a one-to-one -one relationship. It's the company 
delivering content and services to the customer. And I think what's happening now is we're seeing an increasing desire because of the commoditization of technology, because younger people are growing up in a world with the internet where they want community experiences. I mean, a good example of this is Fitbit. They don't just sell fitness trackers. They've got a massive community that's broken into people who swim, people who run, all these kinds of different places. So to me, there's more of an opportunity than ever for people to get into the business of building communities. And that's kind of segues into the next question that you had, which was around like a director of community. One of the things that I think is interesting when new industries form is the terminology tends to shift and change. So when I started, for example, I'd never heard the term community manager until I went for the job at Canonical. I've never seen it before. And now we've started seeing director of community, community manager, community evangelist, developer relations, all of these different pieces. The way I kind of look at it is a director of community is able to understand the needs of an organization the broader needs, not just the community needs, to also define the community needs and then to break that into a strategy that they can then execute and assign the right resources to deliver that kind of success. In the same way of a VP of engineering will coordinate engineering resources and deliver engineering outcomes such as a product or a service. Community managers, in my mind, are people who are in there every day, knee-deep in community members, to, um, engaging with people on forums, social media, doing talks, generating content, all the nitty gritty kind of work that you need to keep a community engaged. And then an evangelist is somebody out there is primarily focused on raising awareness of that community and that, and that company mm-hmm. um, and bringing people in. That's how I kind of differentiate. No, that's great. I mean, I think that's perfect. And and you know it's interesting. I work at uh, Wikimedia, which has many communities, yeah. and I think you you hit on so many things that you know I'm I'm eight weeks in on the job, but I think I see so many uh, of what you just described there come through. I'm curious right. then, like now overlaying John O'Bacon as the consultant extraordinaire for community, right? <laughs> C- consulting is often feast or famine, right? Share with our our listeners that that getting started, the inception moment around, you did this at Canonical, like, all right, I'm going to go forge my, my own way on this and, and build, yeah. build a consulting brand and, and really, you know, a whole brand around this now. Again, like anything else, it was kind of uh, an unexpected path. Um, I'd always flirted with the idea of, um, of being a consultant. And one of the reasons for this is, in every job I've ever been in, and this is just something to do with my brain, I've always really enjoyed the diversity of providing guidance where appropriate to lots of different organizations. So when I was at Canonical, you know, that's when it started happening. People would reach out to me and say, hey, you know, um, I'm starting a new open source project. What would you recommend? What have you learned from your experience working on Ubuntu? And there'd always be like every week, there'd be various people reaching out. And that drumbeat started becoming more profound when I wrote The Art of Community for O'Reilly about 12 years ago. And then I did a second edition um, about 10 years ago because people would read the book and they'd say, how do I implement this into my organization? And that's actually when the first consulting request came in. It was from Deutsche Bank. And they said, how do we do this inside of our business? So I started doing a bit of consulting on the side And I didn't really do a lot of it because I didn't have a lot of time. And I primarily only did it with company who were the primary people reaching out to me. And I didn't look for it. Hmm. Um, And then when I kind of went and worked at XPRIZE and at GitHub, again, when I left Canonical, when I left XPRIZE, 
I was flirting with the idea of it, but I was never confident that I could get enough business. So I was kind of like, yeah, we'll put it to one side. And financially, my wife and I, like Erica, she was running Bitnami. Bitnami was later sold to VMware, and now she's at GitHub. But you know, she's a founder, right? So she's not pulling in a large salary. Most of her value is tied up in equity. I was pulling in my salary, and we just had a kid. So it was just too risky to give it a go. Yeah. And then went to XPRIZE, went to GitHub. And when I was thinking about leaving GitHub, I just thought, look, if you don't give it a go, you're always going to be wondering. And I always, throughout my life, have what I call my rocking chair moment, which is when you're 85 years old, you're looking back over your life and you, everyone's died. <laughs> You've outlived <laughs> everybody, hopefully, because of the amount of gin that you drink. Um, and then... Nobody ever says, I wish I'd stayed in that job longer, or I wish I'd worked more. We always say, I wish I'd spent more time with our families. I wish I'd pursued my hobbies more. I wish I'd tried to do the things I wanted to do. And I thought, if you don't do it, you'll never know. So I basically left GitHub and started up as a consultant. And uh, I'll always remember just after I'd started walking around Interop in Las Vegas and walking into the exhibition hall and just looking at every company there and thinking, how do I convince them to be a client? <laughs> Just this sense of panic about how you're going to do it. And, and I've been very fortunate because touch wood from day one, I've been fully booked. I've not had a single month where I haven't been fully booked uh, for three years now. Nice. Um, but the caveat here for people who are thinking about getting into consulting is I was lucky because I'd written my book. So I'd already kind of published a methodology to this. And I'd already had some experience in, through this, these other companies. And I also love the hustle of consulting. I love talking to new clients. I love prospecting for business. when I've, And frankly, I don't really prospect for business. It's just when people come over and having conversations to see whether it's a good fit. Some people really don't like that. They just want to do the work and they want someone else to bring in the business. If, 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 you're not, if you don't enjoy the hustle, don't be a consultant because you're going to be miserable. So. Yeah. I, I do think you hit on something really cool there, though, is that I see a lot of this in, uh, you know, you see a lot of this in management and you see this as a founder in a lot of places. There's this, people so often frame life as these binary things. And right. what, you, what you said to yourself is, okay, I'm, I'm in a current place. It's not keep doing this or quit. It's yes and. And you figured out yeah. a way to start to do a little bit on the side. To see, you know, it's, yeah. it's that dipping your toe in the water. And I, I think that's so important for people to realize mm -hmm. that, frankly, it probably just means you play video games for an hour less out of your day, right? Like right. you, you can yeah. often dip your toe in the water for an hour or less every day. I look at this podcast. I try to spend a half hour every day doing something for it. And I can do that on the side without exactly. it being a big burden to family, right? I think you hit on yeah. something really important there. Let's shift gears a little bit. I mean, I, you know, I love when I have open source people on because open source has been huge in my own career. And likewise, you had this moment with your brother early on of like, hey, John, I'll check out this thing called Linux. And then, you know, you've, you've crafted this consulting around both commercial and open source. But talk about the open source aspects a bit deeper and how it, what it's meant for your career. I have an enormous debt of gratitude to, to open source because for me, it's not just created a career, but it, it shaped the way in which I think and it shaped my attitude somewhat towards 
unlocking opportunity that's ahead of you. You know, when I started out before I got in, interested in open source, I've always been, I guess when I was younger, I was, you could probably describe me as being a bit of a dreamer. Like, you know, I'd, I'd have ideas about things I wanted to do. And I've always had a general idea, a general philosophy of, if you don't have a go at it, then you don't get it. Yeah. And open source is the purest environment for being able to do that, I think. You know, because when, when I was 18, and like I said, I had a pretty turgid collection of grades. <laughs> uh, I was going to, frankly, a pretty average university. The reason why I went to Wolverhampton University was because one of the preeminent professors on interactive multimedia at the time, Professor Stephen Molyneux, was, um, he ran a course there. It's because he didn't want to take that course elsewhere. Hmm. And uh, so he, he had it in, in at Wolverhampton. By the way, Stephen Molyneux, not the right wing <laughs> different guy <laughs> for people who are listening names are I didn't hard study under him. <laughs> names are hard so you know as a young person one of the things that i'm really thankful for open source with is that you can go in there and it's it, it provides an opportunity to build a resume right so for example i started yeah. a website called linux uk in the in, in the uk which is basically ironically uh, the first version of it was made in microsoft front page because i didn't know html and it basically pulled people together in the UK because I just wanted to meet people who are interested in open source. I used to work in a bookshop back then before I went to university and I used to print Linux penguins on t-shirts with an iron just in case somebody would see it and want to have a chat about Linux. And, uh, you know, bit by bit, you start joining communities and contributing a little bit, a little bit here and there. And at the beginning, there's massive amounts of imposter syndrome and then you kind of get into it. But for me, what I'm very thankful of is that I ended up meeting so many interesting people that I would never have met if I didn't get interested in open source. Mm -hmm. uh, like a lot of people who I'm friends with today, back in the early days of open source, people like Matthew Garrett, Stuart Langridge, there's all kinds of these different folks. We all kind of grew up in the same time going through this and we we're all figuring it out. And what I love about open source is that it provided a great way of getting peer-reviewed feedback on the things that you're doing, because that's the open source way. But there's also an element of, why don't we just go for it and have a go at doing something? Like, and there's been so many examples of this. Like one example was when I used to do a podcast called Lug Radio, which was bonkers. I used to record it in Cubase on my Mac, and I used to get endless amounts of grief from the, from the community about this. So, but I didn't use the recording tools that are available on Linux like Ardor because I felt like it was too complicated. So over about 15 cups of tea one night, hanging out with my friend Stuart, we basically designed a really easy to use multi-track software tool. And I basically wrote a blog post about it and someone then went and created a, um, a bit of code that was nicknamed Jono Edit. <laughs> that implemented the beginning of this. And I thought, why don't we build this? So um, we ended up working on this and we ended up building this tool called Jacosha, which somebody else named. Um, and it was named Jacosha, which was kosher means no bacon. And then Joe. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, what I loved about that was a little group of people came together with an idea. And that to me is the essence of open source. So to me, not only does it allow the ability to build a career, but it, it builds that intrinsic spirit of, like a have a go attitude. Yeah. What Winston Churchill would refer to as keep buggering on. <laughs> and, and I love that about open source. 
Yeah. Well, and I'm pretty sure you just gave away the real secret for building community, which is put a logo on a t-shirt and wear it around town and have people ask you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Shifting gears a little bit. And before we specifically talk about People Powered, your book, I'd love to hear about how did you get your start as an author? Because, you know, on top of this community side and there's also this, hey, I'm going to start writing books, which is a whole nother undertaking of work, right? I've written a book and that's a lot of work, right? Yeah. <laughs> so you, you got to yeah, be a certain is, type yeah. of mind. You got to be a certain type of brain to uh, to want to do that, right? <laughs> right. I've always enjoyed writing and it goes back to when uh, when I first got on the internet in about 1996. And in England, you had to pay to get on the internet. It was 10 pence a minute. Um, there was no free local call. So you had, I had very minimal amounts of time. So I wasn't just hanging around online in chat rooms or whatever else. So I set up a website on GeoCities and I used to write text files, which were a big thing back then, with basically guitar lessons. And I used to write these and put them online. And then when I discovered open source and Linux, I used to write documentation for projects. Some stuff was part of the Linux documentation project back then. So I was always interested in writing. And so that meant that when I went to university and I went to exhibit uh, the KDE project at the Linux conference in, in London, managed to blag a free booth there. And I, I got drunk in a bar with, these, with, um, with Richard Drummond and Nick Veitch. And they were starting this magazine called Linux Format, which is still around today. And they gave me an opportunity to get something in the magazine. And once that first article was published, I just started writing more articles. And I really enjoyed it. And it brought in a little bit of money while I was at university, like 40 pounds an article or whatever it was. And I was obsessed about O'Reilly. O'Reilly, I used to collect O'Reilly books. I had a massive library of them. And part of it was that the bookshop that I worked in got bought by another company. So all of the stock from our company was sold off for one pound for a paperback and two pounds for a uh, for a hardback, wow. and the guy who ran the company said, who ran our branch said, take whatever you want. So I ended up taking about ten boxes of books, many of which were O'Reilly books, <laughs> and I always had a dream of writing for O'Reilly. So I can't remember how it happened, but basically I got introduced to someone at O'Reilly, and they came and they approached me about co-authoring a book called Linux Desktop Hacks back then, and and that taught me about. I took that job very seriously. You know, I read The Elements of Style by Strunk and White. I read a whole bunch of books about writing because I was like, I am not going to ruin this opportunity. Even though in retrospect, it was Linux desktop hacks. <laughs> Whatever. So uh, we just kind of went from there and wrote that book and then joined Canonical and then Prentice Hall wanted to, to do a book about Ubuntu. The official Ubuntu book kind of came through and then talked to O'Reilly about the art of community and just one thing led to another really. And so here we are, People Powered is your latest book. Walk us through it. What's it about? Who's Who's the target audience? Yeah. So when I wrote The Art of Community, which is a very in depth technical manual for community managers who are working primarily in open source, a lot of companies would come out, come to me and say, look, we just bought your new book. We're looking forward to reading it. And particularly for like executives, founders, entrepreneurs, people who are not doing on the ground community management work. I was always worried about them reading the art of community because I felt like it, they get lost very quickly. It's like five or 600 pages. It's very, very technical and in depth. So for a while now, I've been wanting to write a book, which is more of a business book. It's designed for a general purpose audience, which include technology folks as well as others that basically shares the value proposition of communities and why they're interesting and and what they can do 
but also how do you go about building out a community strategy? How do you define the value? Pick your personas. How do you onboard people? How do you build incentives and rewards? How do you engage with people? How do you integrate online and in-person events? And then how do you integrate that into your business? How do you hire the right kind of people? What kind of maturity models do you look for? I always wanted to write a book like that. But, and that's what People Powered is. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. It was a challenging book to write because business books are short. And mm. frankly, I don't know about you, Grant, but I don't like a lot of business books because I feel like <laughs> in each chapter, it, it, they share like two principles that they drown you in examples over and over and over again. And then you're like, I get it. <laughs> and I wanted people powered to have be high level and approachable that anyone can read, but really go into a good level of detail about how you do it and be very pragmatically useful. I feel like I mean, it's early days. The book just came out, so the audience will decide this, but I feel like reasonably it accomplishes that goal. And I got some cool people to contribute some content, like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, who's the Emmy Award-winning actor, Mike Shinoda, who's the co-founder of Linkin Park, Jim Zemlin from the Linux Foundation, Ali Velshi, who's the anchor on MSNBC. You know, these, all, these folks all contributed some content to kind of make my raw material seem a bit better. That's awesome. And yeah, we'll see what happens. And But you know, writing that book was in itself as part of the writing journey was a whole new thing for me because it's how you get a business book published is very different to how you get a tech book published. Because the business press, for example, you've got to have an agent and they won't talk to regular authors. You've got to go through an agent and it's they've got really long timelines and all the rest of it. So. Yeah, for sure. And well, in, in most business books too, I think you, you missed one of the key things, right? Is Is you need an acronym. Because if if you don't have an acronym, then it's not a business book, right? You know, it's got to be it's got to be something that you know you can put in somebody's brain. You know, that little earworm, right? Yeah. So hopefully, exactly. so hopefully yours has an acronym. I think there's a couple of acronyms in there. Awesome. Uh, the, the tricky thing as well is I just I don't want to come across as one of these nauseating, like self help people um, with this ridiculous in invented jargon. Yeah. So I wanted it to be like down to earth and frankly a bit english in nature very down to earth but also you know serious stuff so yeah for sure i mean I, I always tell people my favorite business book of all time is one about rock climbing so you know <laughs> and it's not a business book at all it's actually a book about rock climbing but you know, that, that's a that's exactly. a whole different story so i think you're right and you know having known you for a while I, i'm pretty sure you, you, you'll hit the mark there right so but like you I said it's, so. it's up to the readers and that's actually one of the really like as an author like you know it's like what was that country song? Jesus take the wheel. Like once this thing's published, mm. like, you know, Jesus take the wheel. Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, that's it. I mean, it's, and it's, that's actually been a little terrifying with this because uh, like I said, that when I wrote the art of community, wrote the book and then a couple of months later it came out. Whereas with the business press, like I wrote most of people powered at the end of last year and it came uh -huh. out in November this year. So it's not often I've worked on something for that long before it gets consumed by the world. So you end up going through this level of excitement and anxiety kind of interweaving, <laughs> interweaving your brain. Well, if it helps you at all, I started my book in 2008 and I was published in 2013, but that was on me, not on anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, John, oh, that's that's fantastic, and and you know to the extent that this show that we're just getting started with can can help and promote the book, we're more than happy to do that because we we love oh, what you're you. doing. Uh, Appreciate you know, that. 
jobs and careers aren't all sunshine and rainbows, as I like to say. You know, what's been some of the, the more challenging aspects of doing what you do? You know, like what's a little bit of perhaps peek behind the curtains that, that goes into yeah. to crafting this life? There's a couple of things that wrap up in that. One thing that was challenging at times, especially when I was at Canonical, was Canonical made a series of decisions that were quite controversial in our community. We launched this desktop environment called Unity, which at the time, some community members were very excited about and some people were very nervous about. You know, We had to differentiate with Ubuntu because one of the challenges with open source, of course, is that anyone can take it. And as a company, you've got to make some money from it, but you also want to respect the ideals and the culture of the community. So we made some change. We made some, some decisions that were controversial and some of those decisions were good decisions and some of those decisions were bad decisions. But I was very much one of the most visible members of the company. And we had to deal with a lot of conflict back then. And in some cases, a lot of personal attacks towards me. And, you know, I've, I've generally taken a very objective approach to this, which is, if you are going to be critical, but you're going to be respectful and dignified in your criticism, I'll listen to you. If you're going to be hateful, mean spirited, and just an a-hole about it, then I'm not interested. And it took me some time to figure out what that balance looked like. And I was, when I look back on that, I think I was generally pretty patient with people, but it takes a bit of a personal toll in, you know, that kind of waking up in the morning and dealing with that is exhausting. And that was, that was difficult, but I'm glad I went through it because I learned a lot about patience and about listening to your critics. I ended up writing a, um, a short ebook called Dealing with Disrespect, which was mm. precisely around that, which is when people disagree with each other, and this is happening so much now with the current culture of the internet, mm. um, that you, someone disagrees with you and it's easy to just go nuclear on them. And to me, there's so many elements in, that play into this. Like there are people with di from different age groups, people from different cultures, people with different levels of communication capabilities online. Like, you know, all of this plays a role in, in how we communicate. And it taught me to look at the intent as opposed to just looking at the words. But that was challenging. Yeah. The other element, I think, a journey that I've been through is, I think I used to be, a, especially when I was younger, quite an anxious person. And anxiety is something that Generally, when I was growing up in North Yorkshire in the UK and from my childhood, no one talked about anxiety. That's not something you have. And I think especially, frankly, a lot of men are very self-conscious about this. For sure. And I think I realized that I was actually quite anxious about some of these things. The thing that really helped a lot with this was becoming a consultant where hmm. you very much face the reality that you might not have business. And <laughs> I think as I've got older, just learning that you never get rid of anxiety. You change your relationship with it. You just don't let it have any power over you. And these days I'm far less anxious than I used to, but you always go through a wave here and there of a bit of a wobble of, you know, is everything going to be good with this book or is, you know, people happy with what I'm as, as a, as a consultant, I try to look at these things as, okay, this is not necessarily negative in your personality. It is just an element of your personality and you learn how to manage it. I'm not expecting anyone else to deal with this. I'm expecting myself to deal with it. And that in itself is pretty empowering because I think when you can make progress in those kinds of areas, then, you know, you end up with a happier life. So, Yeah. Wow. Like I said, my whole goal with this podcast is just to have a one-hour mentoring session with somebody I respect. And <laughs> <laughs> John, you hit on 
so many like things I think we all struggle with, right? I, I, the number of years I let things live in my head rent free, uh, as they say, you know, and and then finally, and you never quite are over it, but yeah. realizing yeah, no, it's yeah, it, it it's it's like a switch goes off then, and all of a sudden, like you just feel unlocked, and and you can go do so many things that you always were, eh should I write that book? Should I not? Like, you know, now all of a sudden you're just like, Hey, you know, it'll be okay. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's one of the things I wish I'd known. And, uh, one of the things I waffle on about in some of my talks at conferences is I'm a big fan of this philosophy called stoicism, which is all about looking at yourself from the outside in. We've all experienced this. You go into a job interview, um, and there's a power dynamic where the other person's got all the power and you, you feel subservient to them, or you go into a, a meeting with your boss and your boss is not happy about something, you feel that knot in your stomach when that happens. And uh, stoicism is all about training yourself to say, what do I, okay, this feels uncomfortable, but what do I want to do to get the best outcome? And kind of training your brain to have a, a separate bit of your brain that looks inwards and says, okay, what do we want to do with this? And I've been a fairly, um, I wouldn't say I'm a, an obsessive pract practitioner of it, but it's very important to me to do that. A tiny example is my parents would come and visit from the UK, would hang out for a week, and then they'd leave and I'd be depressed uh, because I'd miss, I'd miss my parents. I don't see them very often and they're getting older. And then like a lot of people, when you feel sad about something, you then start saying, well, oh God, what else am I doing wrong? And blah, blah, blah. And then you start evaluating everything. And now I've realized the day they leave, is going to suck. But the day after that is going to be fine. And I think yeah. once we learn those patterns of our psychology, it puts everything in perspective uh, a lot better. So for example, I've now learned if I do something new, I'm probably going to suck at it. But then I can now say, you know what? That's the first time you've done it. It's only going to get better from here. Let's evaluate what you did. And I think that is something that frankly, I, I think primarily comes with age. It's just as you live on the planet more. <laughs> so, yeah, and realize that you suck at every new thing you do, and then eventually you don't suck at it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or you move on. I remember, when I, <laughs> I remember when I started smoking barbecue. I'm really into barbecue. And uh, the first rack of ribs I made, my friends just chewed through it. And like, yeah, it's great. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know it's not great. I know it sucks. You don't have to lie to me. <laughs> uh, well, I live in the South, so, you know, Challenge accepted, Jono. I mean, you know, oh. you need to come yeah. on down, and or we need to have a little cook off there. Although I won't oh, claim to be it. the one one cooking, but uh, uh, there right. are definitely well, some good barbecue restaurants down here. So, oh, for sure, bad barbecue. Bad barbecue over there is better than good barbecue. Over there, so, <laughs> well, and then the real question is: is vinegar or tomato? Where oh, I, for where me, I vinegar. Yeah. yeah, I love vinegar. Oh, all right, you're an I like East the tang. You're an East Carolinian, then. That's uh, yeah, that, that's good. My answer is both. So ah, there you go. Yeah, I didn't <laughs> realize not? you could have both. Wow, <laughs> moonshot thinking right there. <laughs> I'm, I'm paid to think differently. <laughs> <laughs> right, Jono. I think this has been awesome. So I want to just wrap up with with a couple of bits, and I think in many ways you just gave me that the answer to the first question, but you know, one of the things I, I love to ask of all my guests is if our listeners want to follow this path, right? Like, Hey, I'm going to be a consultant. I'm going to go build community. 
what advice would you give them to get started? I think what I would say is if we break it into two areas, if you want to, if you want to get involved in kind of the community side, community management, for example, is just go and start. There are thousands of communities out there who need help, who want someone to kind of come in and, you know, just gently help out here and there. Don't go in and try to dominate, but go in and help out. Go and join a community and get some experience and, and get your feet wet. And then go from there and write a lot. Share your learnings, have a blog, write on social media. And then gradually look for opportunities as they manifest themselves. You know, if you see an opportunity to write for a new website or an opportunity to go and speak at a conference or there's an opportunity to go and do a talk about your experiences building community, I think just go from there. It's have a go and go for it. From a consulting perspective, I think the most important thing in my mind is, is to be aware of when you start consulting, most people, I think, focus on the service that you provide and perfecting that. And to look at your business as not just the service that you provide, but all the things that are wrapped around it, like you know, your look and feel of your website. It's the what's in your statement of work, how you invoice people, um, how you go about finding clients and business and, and all those pieces. And to look at that as much of a project as perfecting your the service that you provide. And then again, to like look at the world as the world is filled with opportunities. I think we just need to sniff them out. And of course, everybody is coming from this from a different perspective. I'm not suggesting that everybody is dripping in opportunity. And some people come from some difficult backgrounds and have got more pressing conditions that can limit their opportunities. But I still think if you, if you look at the world through a glasses half full, you know, we, the future is a malleable place that we can make better. You'll find those opportunities. And there, my dad is a perfect example of someone who had a very, very difficult life. You know, like he was raised pretty poor, had polio, had all kinds of health issues, very limited education. And he would just sniff out the opportunity as he found it. And I think everybody can do that. So. Yeah, so true. That's really great advice. I'm going to skip over the the normal question I ask around. What are some resources and th- that have helped you? Because I think for me, like all of our readers, should just go pick up some of your books and and get started there. I'd appreciate that. Yeah, all of our listeners should do that. Um, so with that, you know, I kind of just wrap up with one last question, which is, hey, Jono, where can our listeners follow you and find out more about you and your career? A starting point could be my website, which is johnobacon.com, J-O-N-O, bacon, like the delicious meat, uh, .com. And then, you know, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. I do Instagram here and there. I keep forgetting about Instagram, to be honest with you. <laughs> LinkedIn. Uh, and my, my username is johnobacon on most of them, apart from Instagram, because some demon stole my identity and so i know i'm john o'bacon graham on there but yeah that's probably the best place i mean i i I write quite a lot of articles um you know i i post a lot on social media so that's probably a good place to start so and i'm an open book if anyone's got any questions particularly i love anyone who's kind of figuring out their career and where where they want to go and just drop me an email john at john and i'd be happy to help where i can that is so awesome. And we'll be sure to link all of that up in the, the show notes. And of course, people can do the good old Google for John O'Bacon. Like you said, you're pretty yeah, easily not found many of these. Online. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're pretty easily found these days. So, hey, John, thanks again for, for joining us today. Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks, Grant.
Yeah. And, and thank you, of course, to our listeners for taking the time. As always, if you like the show, we'd love for you to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or Spotify or whatever your favorite app is. You, of course, can also visit us at developmentor.com to hear older episodes, to find these show notes we're talking about, as well as other content on careers in tech. Most importantly, if you like the show, please tell your friends referrals are of course the lifeblood of any podcast if you have any feedback we'd love for you to share that with us either about this episode or about other episodes or just want to drop us a line you can do that at podcasts at developmentor.com finally we just here at developmentor hope that each and every episode helps you move one step closer to finding your path in tech